Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Before we get into it, uh, a little task for you to do. I want you to uh, very quickly think of your favourite TV show or TV drama series or film of all time. Uh, don't spend long on it. Just the first thing that pops into your mind. You've all got something. If you haven't, you can consider it later. I don't wish you to be distracted from this talk uh, for one second longer. But uh, there's always the exception to the rule. And so I don't want you heckling me or saying, well, my favourite drama isn't like this. But more often than not, the thing that makes a drama or a story great is the way that the lead character or lead characters respond to an unexpected event. It's like their lives are going fine, some kind of crisis hits, they respond to the crisis, and they either live happily or unhappily ever after as a result. And all of that, fits perfectly with the context of this letter that Jimmy has just read to us to the church in Sardis. Let me explain why. Sardis had been the dominant city in the region. It had been very wealthy, incredibly powerful, very, very influential. It had been a military centre and also a centre for trade. To help you visualise it, there were two main parts to the city. There was the lower level and also the upper level. And the upper level was around about 1,500 feet above the lower level and contained an apparently impregnable fortress. And so, as a city, they felt incredibly secure, like nothing bad could ever, ever happen to them. And really, that complacency proved to be their downfall. Because one night, crisis hits. While they're all asleep in their beds, the Persian king and his army scaled the cliffs up to the upper part of the city and got through a hole in the wall that was so small that it said that a child could have defended it against an entire army. But in their arrogance... They didn't even bother to guard it. And so, as a result, in 546 BC, the city fell. Tragically, they didn't learn from their mistakes. And the exact same thing happened again in 214 BC. Enemy forces scaled the cliffs under cover of darkness and completely sacked the city, totally destroyed To make matters worse, in AD 17, the city was then destroyed by a devastating earthquake. And so, by the time that this letter was written to this church in Revelation, I think it's fair to say the city was a fading beauty, this withered version of what it had once been. They hadn't responded well in the face of crisis and hadn't learned from their mistakes As a result, their past reputation exceeded the present reality. Now, despite all of that, for outsiders looking in, the church in Sardis seemed to be doing pretty well. 
But then a messenger shows up with a letter from the Apostle John containing a message for this church from none other than Jesus himself. You can imagine the entire church gathering around, a bit like we are today, desperate to hear what Jesus has to say to them. And as they listen to these words that Jimmy has just read to us, the historical parallel wouldn't have been lost on them. The church, like its city, had a reputation that didn't match reality. And so Jesus sends them this urgent, sobering warning to wake up before it's too late. Not because he's against the church, but quite the opposite. It's because he has way better things in store for them. And so, all that background out of the way, let's now work through what Jesus has to say to them. Remember, we are not the church in Sardis. This isn't Jesus writing directly to us. But that being said, there are, I think, some important things here for us to learn and apply into our context today. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus gives no commendation whatsoever to this church. In all the other letters, bar one, that we've been looking at over the last few weeks, Jesus praises the good. Despite the faults in the churches, he still sees the hard work and the endurance, the intolerance of evil, the faithfulness, the love, the obedience. But here, he sees nothing at all that is worthy of his praise. It's like they're not facing any persecution because they're not living their faith in a way that's drawing any attention or opposition. As one commentator puts it, the church of Sardis was not alive enough to have enemies or to confront heresy. It has simply become the model of non-offensive Christian faith. And so... Jesus jumps straight into critiquing them. Verse 1, he says, I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. <laughs> and that's it. Now, I think there's more than a passing resemblance here to Jesus' description of the religious leaders of his day over in Matthew chapter 23. There he says this, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people. Inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, some of the hardest people to resurrect are people who don't think they are dead. And so, having a reputation for being alive while being spiritually dead on the inside is something we do have to be alert to. Jesus is warning here of the dangers of simply focusing on outward appearance at the expense of the state of your heart. And sadly, although the church in Sardis appeared full of life, 
It was very much style over substance. And because he cares for them, Jesus calls them to take urgent action. Very helpfully, he provides four very simple steps. It would be more helpful if they all began with the same letter, but Jesus knows best. Four simple steps to take if you want to move from death to life. Here they are, verse 2. Wake up, Jesus says. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. First and foremost, there's this loud cry from Jesus to wake up. If you've just fallen asleep, that might be slightly sinister for you. Wake up. It goes without saying that no amount of wise advice is ever going to work if the recipient is fast asleep and oblivious to the danger. For example, if you are a passenger in a car and the driver is asleep at the wheel, I'd suggest you don't start by telling them to indicate before changing lanes or to slow down and reduce their speed or to change gears. Now, what do you do? You do everything in your power to attract their attention. You scream at them at the top of your voice to wake up. Now, look, I think the last couple of years have very much been a wake-up call to us as a church. I really believe that God has been using this time with all its challenges, all its difficulty to grab our attention. You know, we can very easily just look at the pandemic as a negative thing. And don't hear me wrong, it's been unthinkably awful for so many people. So I'm certainly not making light of it. But when things happen to shock us or jolt us, they have the power to shake us out of our complacency. As such, they're a gift to us. They give us an opportunity for reflection. They help us to evaluate what is working and what isn't. They're like this invitation into a completely different kind of life. You see, pre-pandemic, we could very easily just drift along thinking that we were healthy Christians because we attended a seemingly great church. But where church was merely a meeting we came to, it was just like this habit that didn't impact the other six days of the week, or where we came to be taught We gained lots of understanding and knowledge, but in all honesty, it didn't really shape the way we lived, that there was this kind of gap between belief and lifestyle. It's like we wanted the solace of belief without the commitment of true full life conversion, or where we viewed everything just through the lens of me and my world, and therefore didn't dig deep into community and rejected any teaching that threatened our own perceived happiness. Well, the pandemic has come along and exposed the weakness of our faith. As a result, sadly, 
some haven't returned to church post-pandemic because the habit was broken and there wasn't enough substance to their face to re-engage again. For others, head knowledge alone has been shown to be not enough and they're now faced with a choice. Walk away from the face because it doesn't seem to work or embrace the need for wholehearted devotion to Jesus. And we're the message of our culture that individualism is the answer, that I'm my own saviour who can be and do whatever I want. Where through the pandemic, that really has been shown to be a lie. We can naively, foolishly, stupidly return to pursuing that all-elusive happiness with me as sovereign ruler of my life, or we can come to our senses and humbly embrace a life of discipleship, recognizing the sovereignty of the kingdom of God in all of life and laying down our own personal autonomy at the foot of the cross. Could it be that God has used the pandemic to wake his church up? Could it be that he's allowed this shaking to take place, to jolt his church to life and stop us sleepwalking to the grave? Could it be that this is our opportunity to grow into the community of believers that Jesus always intended for us to be. Well, if this letter to the church in Sardis is anything to go by, all of that could well be what God is doing among us right now. Now, if that is the case... It begs the question, what do we need to do? Well, Jesus, very helpfully, goes on to stress the importance of strengthening what little remains. Now, I think a lot of the time, if we're honest, we want the dramatic transformation, don't we? But in reality, strength often comes from simply doing small things consistently, We're drawn all the time to intensity, but the fruit tends to come from consistency. By way of example, a number of years ago, I injured my ankle. And so uh, I booked an appointment with a physio. Uh, The appointment came through. I went along anticipating that the physio would manipulate my ankle and magically I'd be healed. They didn't do that. I anticipated that if they didn't do that, they'd just say, Jonathan, this is so bad, go and get an operation, then it will be better. They didn't suggest that either. They gave me an oversized elastic band and told me to put it over my foot and wiggle my foot 20 times a day. Now, I wasn't having any of that. Um, I thought they weren't doing their job. They hadn't manipulated my ankle. I hadn't made it well again. Um, I'd go and see my GP and I'd get the operation that clearly I needed. Uh, the GP merely backed up the advice of the physio. It's like they were colluding together. And so um, I, I humbly started wiggling my foot with this oversized elastic band thing. And it didn't seem to be making any difference, but I kept doing it. 
And over time, I didn't quite know, notice when it happened, but over time, after a few months, funnily enough, my ankle was strong again. Hey, a cheer for the physios. Now, I think that is a kind of great illustration of our spiritual lives. You know, the enemy wants to trick us into thinking that the small things have no power. But small things done consistently over time will lead to great strength. To use another analogy, not showing off here, but we've got a log-burning stove in our house. Now, uh, this might be news to some of you, but I am incredibly impatient, uh, and it shows itself with the log-burning stove. I want to just strike a match, light the biggest log I can find, and see it catch a blaze. But what I've learned is that to make the log burn requires kindling or a load of petrol, but it's in the house and that isn't really very practical. So you've got to take time building up the fire with small twigs before then finally putting on the bigger logs when it's hot enough. In the same way, if let's say we want a strong prayer life in the church, We need to start doing small things consistently. You know, over the years, we've tried big prayer meetings. But if truth be told, only a small fraction of the church ever comes. And so what we're doing right now is starting with a bit of kindling. And as you might have noticed this morning and the last few Sundays, we're using just a chunk of our Sunday meeting every week to pray together for a specific situation. And we're also inviting people to carve out 15 minutes to join others on Zoom, to pray together from 7.30 to 7.45 every weekday morning or evening. If you want more details, Johnny will tell you, or it is on the website, I think. And when people gather in our community groups, we're encouraging prayer to be a natural part of what we do together. And then, just to tip you off, at the end of April, we're putting a slightly bigger log onto the fire with a church central-wide 24 hours of consecutive prayer that's coinciding with the end of Ramadan. And as the fire starts to burn, we'll then be able to start introducing some even bigger logs so that in time we see a furnace of prayer powering the church. Another example. We dream of the day as a church when Jesus will be the most talked about person in our city. Now, in the past, we've put on big guest events, but almost 100% of the city haven't come. It's very rude, but they just haven't come. And so, what we're doing now is encouraging people to meet every other week, just for an hour, with three or four people, to talk about loving Jesus and loving others more effectively. And over time, as Jesus becomes the most talked about person in our lives and the lives of the people we're meeting up with, and as those groups multiply and hopefully keep multiplying, we'll start seeing the fire spread as more and more people experience the love of Jesus for themselves and become disciples who make disciples. You see... If we do these small things consistently, then over time, 
It'll be like the kindling that reignites the fire of God in the life of the church. And so, strengthen what little remains. And then Jesus moves on to stress the importance of remembering. Verse 3, he says, Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Kind of reminds me of Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 and 19. Paul writes, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. May they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Timothy is struggling to pastor in the church at Ephesus. He's dealing with theological opposition, leadership challenges, major pastoral problems. And Paul's advice to him is this, remember the prophecies spoken over you so that you have the courage to keep going. You know, when it's hard, when we're struggling, when we, we kind of feel like throwing in the towel and giving up, we need to take a moment to remind ourselves of what God has said. He's promised us as a church that he has many people for us in our city. He's promised us that we'll be like a national exhibition center for the display of his glory. He's promised us that we'll be like the canal network reaching into different parts of this city. He's promised that we'll be like a busy international airport with people being sent to the nations and the nations being sent to us. He's promised us exponential growth, the kind of growth that starts off slow and gradual and then spikes up. He's promised us climate change, the kind of climate change you get when you jump on a plane at Birmingham Airport in the middle of December and land a few hours later in Barbados, that kind of swift change of climate in the life of the church. I tell you, there is so much power in reminding ourselves both who God is and what he's called us to. These are the things that give us the why that enables us to persevere. That These are the things that remind us why it is all worth it. Listen, if all we do is live in our current circumstances and draw discouragement from them, we're fundamentally not going to be able to live a life of faith. Promises are designed to pull us out of the present and towards a better future. We have to continue to speak these words into our lives and into the lives of the people around us. So Jesus says, wake up, strengthen, remember, because this church has a call on it and it's settling for something less. He says, I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Or as the NIV puts it, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Listen, we cannot 
let the cynicism of our culture dictate the temperature of our hearts. We must not allow the individualism all around us to shrink our vision to just me. We mustn't walk away from God's big story and find our place merely in our own little story. God has got so much more he wants to do in and through his church, in and through us together. And so we've got to find ways to keep reminding ourselves what we're called to and then ruthlessly go after it. So easy just to drift into spiritual mediocrity rather than living up to our full potential in Christ. So easy to just settle and shrink our vision to something that seems reasonable and respectable. So easy just to remain quiet, not ruffling any feathers, just for the sake of a peaceful life. But Jesus calls us to hold fast to what we've received from him and repent. So he closes this section out by calling us to turn away from all of this and wholeheartedly follow him. And then, as though it wasn't heavy enough already, Jesus then drives the message home with a warning. He says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis, you know, you remember the history of your city. Don't let this happen to your church. You are weaker and more vulnerable than you realize. And so guard what you've got. Otherwise, someone is going to come in and take it away. And it will be someone altogether more frightening than the Persian army it will be me. Last year, our house was burgled overnight while we were asleep in bed. We came down in the morning and were puzzled to find the back door wide open with the lock completely broken. And we found the thieves had made off with my bike. They'd moved Helen's bike out of the way, thought that wasn't worth taking, and had gone for my bike instead, which was their source of much consternation with Helen. Uh, now, uh, the police were great. Uh, they, they took the time to, to walk around both the house and the perimeter of the house, just pointing out all the, as it transpired, many weak spots, and then what to do to burglar-proof our house. It was a real eye-opener. Now, <laughs> it transpired, we'd just got very, very complacent, never imagining anything like that would ever happen to us. And so we hadn't put in place some really very simple measures that would keep us safe. And just in case any robbers out there are listening to this online, we have now put those measures in place. It's not a challenge to you to try and break through them, but uh, our house is a little more like a fortress now. So uh, go somewhere else, or better still, don't try anywhere else. Now, in a similar way, Jesus, I believe, is taking the time to walk around the perimeter of the church, pointing out our areas of vulnerability. He's shaking us out of our complacency. He's wanting to wake us up to the danger before it's too late. 
But he's not simply wanting to motivate us with fear. Fortunately, there is something way, way, way better than that. He closes this out by spelling out the reward he has in store for them and for us. Verse 4, yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. First of all, Jesus is offering friendship. He says, they will walk with me. This isn't about just externally following all the rules. No, this is about a heart relationship. Second, he offers purity. He says, they will be clothed in white. No shame, no guilt, no fear, no condemnation, no regret, perfectly dressed, ready to enter into all he has for them. And third, he offers security. He says, I will never erase their names from the book of life. Those who acknowledge Christ now will be acknowledged by Christ when he returns. Now, before we wrap up, just a couple of very, very quick implications of all of this for us before I finish. First of all, through all of this, and I recognize it's been a tough listen, through all of this, I do believe we have a wonderful opportunity in front of us as a church. For all the challenges, and there are many, for all the challenges we're experiencing right now, these are actually wonderful days to be alive. You see, all revival is preceded by a time of decline, just like all resurrection is preceded by death. If you were to look through history and ask, when do you see God about to move? It's during declines in the church, like the one we're witnessing in much of the Western world today. What happens is, Jesus comes along to people a bit like us and whispers in our ear, wake up. And when churches respond, his people are revived and are used in ways we would never have previously fathomed. And so I'm simply echoing the message of Jesus to the church in Sardis and calling our church family to wake up strengthen, remember the call of God on our life, and where necessary, repent, because we're not finished yet. There's tremendous opportunity in front of us. And so together, let's resolve to go after everything that God has for us as a church. And then secondly, in all of this, we desperately need more of the Spirit. In my preparation, I came across this haunting quote from A.W. Tozer. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on 
and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Ultimately, if we want to ensure we don't die as a church, we need to ensure we are full of the life-giving spirit of God. Which kind of fits with how Jesus introduces himself right at the very beginning of the letter to the church in Sardis. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis, he says. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Now, we've seen in previous weeks the seven stars of the seven churches. But what's this sevenfold spirit of God? Why does Jesus say this to a church that is on the brink of death? Well, people wiser and cleverer than me suggests that this introduction is echoing the sevenfold description of the Spirit's work in Isaiah 11. I'm guessing most of you are on that page already, but just in case you weren't, this is what it says. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, Jesus. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so putting all of this together, Jesus is saying, I myself will put my Spirit upon you. He will rest on you and give you a greater experience of my presence. He will give you the wisdom you need to navigate the next steps. He will give you understanding of what you're going through. He will walk with you and counsel you through this. He will give you the might and the power that you need to overcome. He'll give you knowledge so you can stand on a firm foundation of truth. He will cause you to fear God so that you're set free from the fear of man. Jesus is saying to us, wake up and welcome a fresh encounter with my spirit who will minister in your life in this way.